This is a podcast from Rover. Welcome back into Rex Well, a fire at an Aurini chicken factory that killed at least 50,000 chickens has raised some concerns and questions about animal welfare, uh, putting animal welfare really in the spotlight this week. Uh, Veterinarians for Animal Welfare Managing Director Dr. Helen Beattie joins us now to discuss this. Good morning, Helen. Welcome to the show. I mean, this isn't the first mass tragedy we've seen in recent times, is it? Kia ora. No, indeed. Back in, I think it was about 2019, there was a, a, a large incident as well where about roughly 20,000 chickens uh, died when the ventilation system shut down. Yeah, so these are, are very alarming, aren't they? What questions does this raise in terms of uh, contingency planning around intensive farming? It's really complex, and I don't want to make it seem in any way uh, that this is, you know, there's one straightforward lever that we can shift here to to provide solutions. That's just not the case. Um, You know, one of the things we're thinking about here is access to um, food and how that feeds into food security for New Zealanders and, you know, affordable protein. So when we start thinking about it from that perspective, it adds a whole lot of uh, complexity to the conversation. But the bottom line is when we've got lots and lots of animals in a small space, um, highly reliant on pretty complex infrastructure, when things go wrong, uh, it, you know, the outcomes can be really serious and, and obviously involving lots of animals. So there's a conversation to be had here around what we need to do to make systems resilient for the future or uh, for these types of events. And when you think about there being um, 12 people is what one of the pieces of media reported on this and uh, taking care of that, that shed, you know, there's no way 12 people can evacuate that number of animals. Mm. So when things go wrong, how do we deal with that and what are the other options? And to be honest, uh, even internationally, there's not great solutions for this. So in the United States, there's a huge conversation going on at the moment around how to manage um, depopulation of large numbers of animals and something called ventilation shutdown has been supported by the Veterinary Association over there. So that's essentially exactly what happened here for those 200,000 chickens a few years ago. Ventilation system fails and they essentially overheat and, and die through asphyxiation yeah. and, and hypothermia. Yeah. Oh God, that so, you know, we, we, we need to find better solutions yeah. than that. Um, in this situation, if you, I'm not sure what, if there are requirements for intensive farms such as a, a chicken farm where they would be housed indoors, but do they have like an emergency management plan or would they have something like that or could we require them to, to have that sort of thing? Mm, great question. So the codes of welfare that are currently out for consultation, so I'm sure you will have been <laughs> reading and following in the media, there's been quite a lot of feedback about a number mm. of them. So the pigs code, for example. Yep. And one of the things that's contained in all of the new codes at the in one of the final um, sections is, is contingency planning and emergency management. Mm. Uh, so that that's pending. They're obviously not published yet. Um, but yes, there was a, absolutely an expectation. And in fact, our Emergency Management Act uh, has requirements in there around um, people's responsibilities to animals um, during emergencies. Okay. I, I guess the point is not not whether or not it's actually legislated for or whether you know there's going to be additional constraints or expectations put on um, people who farm animals through the codes of welfare. But it's what I said before, it's like, what do they do with that? Like, it's such a huge number of animals in a small area that the reality of, you know, how you would manage that, um, you know, compared with moving, you know, say a a herd of cows, uh, it it looks quite different. So we do need to have a think about that because, as I say, I think if we end up in a situation where 
you know, we're we're forced to look at something like ventilation shutdown. There's there's going to be a lot of pretty unhappy people, including the people who look after those birds, right? Like I don't think they would find that to be acceptable either. But it's just what the other options are. Yeah. Okay. So Helen, we saw you penned quite an interesting column around the term animal welfare washing. Can you explain what this term means and, and a bit more about it? Yeah, uh, it's intended to be a bit provocative, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but essentially what we're talking about, <laughs> um, you wouldn't expect anything else from me, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, we're, we're all familiar with, well, a lot of us would be familiar with the term greenwashing around energy yes. and, you know, what's truly green and what's just, you know, kind of glossing over the details and putting a, a spin on it. So the same applies to welfare washing for, for animals. It's also called humane washing. Uh, and essentially, it's the same principle where we, we talk about uh, animals and their welfare in one way, but if it's you dive into the details about, you know, what those animals' lived experiences look like, uh, they, you know, may not necessarily meet um, the, the narrative that's being, being sold. So, for example, um, you know, uh, in, again, intensively raised animals who can't express natural behaviour, um, you know, Pigs and crates can't turn around, they can't nest, etc. So in saying that their welfare is acceptable, we're welfare washing because actually we know those are really important um, natural behaviours for, for sows, as an example. Okay, yeah. So you've just brought up the pigs and crates, obviously chooks and cages, winter grazing, dairy farming and Canterbury. These are some of the things that you know you are not so keen on. <laughs> I think that's a, an obvious statement. But what is acceptable in terms of animal welfare and farming from your point of view? So, I mean, not so keen on that's one way of framing it. I guess the question I'm asking <laughs> yeah. is about what's the plan about resolving these things? Okay. Because there, there yeah. seems to be, you know, I, you can argue whether this is true or not, but, you know, there's an increasing uh, scrutiny around how we are using and engaging animals, whether that's in sport or entertainment or those animals, you know, where we're farming them. And so some of those examples that I used in the article, so around cows on mud, and you probably know I was reasonably involved in that conversation back in mm. 2019 um, and before and, you know, as part of the task force, but also things around, you know, adequate uh, shade for all pastoral animals, but actually, you know, specifically in Canterbury because it, it's so hot there and there's a lot of uh, really raised ground now with centre pivots having gone in. We really need to be thinking, like, what what do we need to do now to get ourselves fit for the future? Because I think that the social licence and palatability uh, for retaining that system the way it is at the moment uh, is, is waning. And I'm not seeing a lot of leadership from the wider sector to say, actually, and, you know, this is this is the plan, this is where we're going, and this is what we need to front foot, and this is how we're going to do it. And that leaves farmers in, un, in a situation of uncertainty, and it leaves animals, you know, uh, without without shelter or shade. We know animals start getting stressed around about 21, 23 degrees, depends on humidity. Um, and you can imagine in Canterbury, that's a lot of days in the summer, not just mm. Canterbury, other parts of the country as well. That's a lot of days where they are, they are heat stressed. Well, I think the bigger question here is around how we support uh, our, our farmers to understand what's going to be required of them, uh, meeting um, you know, what the animals' needs are around whether it's a comfortable place to lie on mud or whether it's having adequate shade and shelter, and then a stepwise plan to get there and making sure the support is provided to get them there. Because let's be honest, we've, you know, the whole system, the supply chain has supported um, the system to get where it's got in the moment, and now we need to find a way to actually um, backtrack from that a little bit and, and provide some better animal welfare outcomes. Mm. 
What what you're saying does make a lot of sense, and I can understand you're talking about how we can actually put some plans in place or what can we do to support people to actually get to these better outcomes because I don't think anyone would deny that is definitely becoming, has over time become something that that consumers are more and more aware of and it's expected, uh, and it is about social licence, as you say. So... In that situation, it obviously that stuff comes with a price tag sometimes or often for farmers. And at the moment, we're seeing, uh, you know, food prices rising, rising, rising. And a lot of New Zealanders don't have that luxury of caring where their food comes from. In terms of, well, they do care, but when it comes to the price, they're probably going to choose the lower priced item at the checkout. What are you? What are your thoughts around yep. that kind of scenario? Because <laughs> it's a it's, it's a, a real and, uh, it's a real tough one. <laughs> it, it certainly is. Um, so I, I presented at a conference on this recently and uh, called my presentation "Wicked Problems," um, the wicked problem of of mud and no trees. And when you start looking at those two situations and then understanding the impact of you know sudden disruptive change to actually uh, inverted commas don't read too much into this fix the problem then actually the flow-on effects to the farmers, the bank balance, the companies and the organisations and the people that support them in their local community, the sector, exports, GDP, that's, that is not the way to do business, right? Like that's going to be absolutely catastrophic for, for us as a country. So this comes back to what I said before, is in thinking about how we need to get resilient and how we need to address these challenges, we've got to sit down and have a really big conversation around saying, what does our 2050 vision look like? Where do we need to be? And then how do we step back, you know, stepwise um, backwards from that uh, to where we are to understand, you know, how we make progress towards that that vision. One of those things, and I'm, I'm really mindful of this, and this needs to feed into how we develop policy for animal welfare um, and, and environment and everything else that we're doing. These are really big conversations and lots of interconnected pieces. But one of the really critical things around this is food security on a national level. So what's our food strategy? What do we need? What's our population going to look like? And how do we feed them? We, we can absolutely feed our population in New Zealand, right? Like we're incredibly fortunate. Mm. Uh, and my view is that we should be absolutely prioritising that piece, making sure that local you know, uh, food suppliers is affordable. Um, however, there's lots of mechanisms we could use to do that. And I don't have views around what's right or wrong. But sort of tying all of those things together, um, one of the things I get frustrated about is people, you know, there's lots of narratives around shifting one lever to fix the problem. So let's get rid of animals and start eating plants. I'm like, it's not the answer. Yeah. <laughs> like plant monocultures are really unhealthy as well. So as a, what we need to think about is that farmer, picture. I'm happy to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I always, I, I, I was going to say, I, I need to mention actually, let's champion sheep and beef, the diverse systems, right? Lower impact, uh, lower stocking rates and, and less impact um, on, on the land in lots of instances. So, you know, those are the conversations we need to be have, having. How are we going to provide uh, local produce that's light on the land and comes from biodiverse systems? And this is, you know, I think it's a really critical piece that's missing Um I'm obviously coming at it from an animal welfare perspective because there's animals in these systems, but actually it feeds back to our, our national food security uh, and our society as a whole, just picking off the little jobs, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, Helen, absolutely fantastic food for thought and so many good ideas in here, and I, and I love the 
uh, before, you know, 2050 will roll around like there's no tomorrow. It'll be here before we know it. And uh, we do need to be uh, all over this like a rash uh, in the short, medium and long term. That is Dr. Helen Beatty, their veterinarians for Animal Welfare Managing Director. Um, we're going to take a, a break here, Bex, because I want to talk about more of this stuff um, yeah. and flesh this one out. So you and I are going to have a little bit of a, a chat about this before we go uh, to news, sport and weather, if you're listening on the radio, um, at 7 on the Saturday morning. That's all uh, coming up next here on Rex Rural Exchange.